Welcome to the Progress City Radio Hour. My name is Michael Crawford, your host today, and with me as always, my brother Jeff. Jeff, how are things? Oh, I'm doing great. I got my uh, my horse tied up, got my cowboy cut jeans on. I'm really ready for this month as uh, it's one of my favorite realms in the Disney world. Yeah, I've got my spurs all polished and they're jingling and a-jangling. We're stepping into Frontierland as we look at the land to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World. We're going to look back at Frontierland and some of its aspects at Disneyland, at Walt Disney World, in animation and in film this month. A lot of different Western flavors in the Disney Pantheon. There's there's so much to explore. That's right. And uh, yeah, I'm excited anytime we can get some Disneyland in for... For the people who say, please, more Disneyland history. We're in the middle of uh, celebrating Walt Disney World this year, but uh, anytime we get Disneyland in, I love it. Yeah, we've been trying to fit it in. We've had some fun video on our live stream, and we've we've got a good exploration of some Disneyland things this month. So, a lot to talk about, but first, before we do that, I want to dig into our mailbag. As you might remember, if you listened to our last episode, which you should have, we, uh, I at least, challenged listeners to let us hear some Adventureland memories, to let us uh, remember the magic of Adventureland past. And uh, we heard from a couple of people, which we're going to get to. Uh, But first, I want to go to a piece we got from Claudia about a week ago, maybe a little bit more. And uh, Claudia says, I've recently discovered your podcast, and it is great. Thank you so much. Claudia says she started with the first episodes we did a decade ago, which makes me a little nervous now, personally. But uh, <laughs> Opinions. Uh, yeah, you guys don't need to go all the way back, but, but it's nice that you do. Anyway, uh, she's now binge listening to all episodes, as there are so many stories and songs that I had never heard before. I have always had a fascination for Disney, but having grown up in Mexico, we didn't get many opportunities to visit the parks. However, at some point in the late 80s and early 90s, it does seem like I went to Walt Disney World every year, which was awesome. Well, that is the peak period of awesome. So, yes, it's it sounds like it would have been. Uh, Claudia says it was during one of those trips that she went to the Epcot Outreach Center to find out more about how does one become one of those lucky cast members from around the world. She was so jealous and definitely wanted to do that, and eventually she jumped through all the hoops and found herself one of those cast members that lived in Vista Way mm-hmm. and worked in Epcot during 1995-1996. She says it's without a doubt one of the best years of her life. And uh, let me say, Claudia, uh, my time may have overlapped with you. I was there in fall of 1996 in Vista Way. There you go. So uh, ships passing in the Vista Way, as so many ships were wont to do. Uh, R.I.P. Vista Way. I know. I know. That's some major news. On the way out. Uh, Claudia says she often wishes she had done some work or put some effort into finding out whether she could get a full-time job at Disney or somewhere else in the company. Um, But... She has found she now lives in the UK with her husband, who she met while on the international program. Very cool. Yeah. She says things worked out well, except for the fact that I now live further away from the US parks and get to visit even less frequently. 
So podcasts, Twitter feeds, Instagram posts, books, and the like are the things that keep me going with my quiet little Disney obsession. Well, same here. Uh, this year, she had been planning to go to Walt Disney World to celebrate her and the park's 50th birthday. Happy birthday. But thanks to the pandemic, international travel is very, very difficult, so she's had to postpone those plans. Uh, now, she says uh, she really enjoyed the episodes where we discussed the park's music. She says, I am a longtime collector of the old CDs and now streams that includes park music, which we appreciate. It's her favorite background music while she is working. But she has a question for us. Uh, she is fascinated by the stories of the people who work for the company and wonders if there's a definitive list of books that we would recommend on Disney history and behind-the-scenes stories. Uh, she says, I have got the Progress City Primer, which I appreciate, among 300-plus other books that I've collected throughout the years, but I always wonder if I have missed some or if there are some lesser-known titles that you would suggest. Um, so what do you think, Joe? I mean, at 300-plus titles, Claudia's got it pretty well covered. That, yeah. Uh, is there anything that springs to your mind as a must-have? Uh, well, for me, a more a must-have has always been, uh, which you know, it's not too uh, unknown, but uh, Reality Land. I love that book. Uh, that's a good book, and that's you know, kind of story about how uh, how Disney World got started, and some great interviews from you know people like Tony Baxter and um, and so on and so forth. So some great stories there. I would say that, Claudia, if you enjoy the stories of people who worked with the company that you check out, if uh, you probably already have, but everybody else should check out the Waltz People series yes. of books by Didier Gaz, edited by Didier Gaz, uh, which are interviews with a slew of people who have worked for Disney over the years. And it's a series that just keeps coming out and coming out constantly. Uh, anything by Didier you should get because it's gold no matter what. You've oh, been gosh. looking at the, um, uh, the the art books, right? Yeah, I've been starting to to collect those. Um, although I need to get on the Waltz people too. But yeah, they they drew as they pleased uh, books. I've I've got two of them now, so I'm trying to get more. They're beautiful, uh, but they're also they have great information in them. Uh, again, the interviews of the old timers. So. I would yeah. definitely. Anything he wrote is great. Uh, sometime, Claudio, we're going to have to put together a list for people because this is a question that comes up a lot. And we're going to have to just make a list of books and put it online somewhere for people to find. The other one I would say that is uh, essential to my uh, preferences is Mouse Tracks, which is a history of Disneyland records. Um, yes. That's a great book. It has a lot of great untold stories that I could find anywhere else. So. That is a that is an excellent book, and of course uh, I'll get in the plug for uh, Chris Merritt and Pete Doctor's Mark Davis book that just came out. Everybody should have that one. Oh yes, of course. Uh, but uh, I don't know. We'll throw it to you, listeners. What do you think? Drop us an email and let us know what uh, your mandatory go-to must-have books are, and maybe we'll share those on a future episode because it's an important question. Anyway, Claudia says thanks again for your show, and I hope you'll keep the new episodes coming. Slowly catching up and dread the day when that comes, says I'll have to wait for new episodes to drop. Uh, says like it's a bit like waiting for the next Disney Plus series. Well, as as she says, drives my kids nuts. But as I tell them, that's when, when I was young, that's what all TV was like. <laughs> it's, it's true. You know, you got to learn that patience. So thanks, Claudia. Uh, yeah, thanks thank you, for Claudia. the email. And uh, uh, Vista Way, Vista Way Power. That's right. 
Uh, we also heard from Erica on the subject of Adventureland, Michael's challenge. Uh, she sent some great photos. Uh, there are some of her grandparents visiting Magic Kingdom for the first time on their move in, from New York in either 79 or 80. Uh, a photo of her standing in front of the Fuente de la Fortuna, which we talked about, was turned off, sadly. Uh, she says she always tossed a coin or two here when she was a kid. Yeah. Also, she says, taking photos in front of fountains was my thing. I'm sure I could find many more of them in my parents' albums, which, you know, kindred spirit, fountain love. I Absolutely. I want to see those pictures. We'll, we can just have a slideshow on a live stream of uh, fountain pictures with Erica. And Michael, to live your, uh, you know, your vision, uh, she has a picture of her mom and her dad and her dressed as pirates at the uh, wacky photo place near the uh, end of Pirates. Lafitte's portrait deck. Yes. That's Actually right. uh, a proud customer of that. That's right. Very so cool. Michael says, bring it back. Uh, she says she has some vague memories of a, the Adventureland veranda, but it's a place that her parents remember quite fondly. They loved teriyaki burgers made with Kikoman sauce. I'm sure I would too. <laughs> she says, I do remember taking a nap in the old school blue metal strollers while my parents ate lunch at the veranda. And yes, the sounds of the strollers over the old Adventureland bridge. If you thought it sounded great, imagine how awesome it felt to be in the stroller. It was. And, you know. Erica, we share this memory. I was uh, basically uh, spent my life at Disney World in that stroller as a youth, just being taken around, naps in the stroller, all of it. I can't beat that. That's right. Uh, she says her favorite part of Pirates, hairy leg dude in the burning town, of course. That's, that's <laughs> we got, uh, that, that is a, a memory from youth because we got stuck very memorably yes. uh, uh, when we were very young uh, uh, directly beneath that guy for a long time on That's pirates right. and right. just that woo 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 yes. for quite a while his little loop uh always visit my tiki birds had so many years without them i stayed far away when it was under new management so i will take all the time i can get with them now even though i wish it was the full show offenbach which you know I agree. We put Offenbach in our episode. You can hear how lovely it was. Unfortunately, it's gone now. But, man, under new management was something. Someday we will talk about it. Uh, <laughs> it Someday. almost can't be believed. But That store in Pirates, it sold all the cool stuff where Pirates League is now. That store sold loose gold coins and gemstones. Grab a bag, shove some random coins and stones, and you purchase based off weight. That sounds cool. Uh, yeah. They had such awesome piratey merch that wasn't Disney IP. I love that store and all the decor that was up above the shelves on the wall. We need more photos of this interior. I couldn't agree more. So. Agreed. That was a very – we talked about that a little. It was very sort of uh, – Ship in a bottle kind of pirate merch store is very cool. And it's a beautiful space. So yeah, maybe someday. Uh, she says citrus swirl over Dole Whip any day, Michael. That's I agree. Uh, El Pirata y El Perico was the place for taco bowls in the early 2000s. They had a toppings bar in the dining area where the restrooms are. Uh, you could get your taco bowl with ground beef in the counter. Then go to the toppings bar for shredded lettuce, sour cream, tomato salsa, you name it. My favorite lunch or quick dinner. So that was when they were in their experimental uh, yeah. days. So how cool. And, uh, you know, 
we might know a little bit about the genesis of the taco bowl uh, later in the month who knows exactly there there's more taco bowl content to come uh thanks erica that was great uh good memories uh our last email comes from andrew who also stepped up to the challenge the adventureland challenge uh says adventureland memory is december 1981 on one of the coldest days i can ever remember here in florida the swan boats were operating for the christmas season and we sat in front freezing as we sailed around the castle moat and i vividly remember what a great view it was at that time of going around the treehouse this part was the highlight and i remember thinking how it could have been even better with more audio animatronic figures like tumbleweed my older self now would not need the animatronics oh i agree uh, a nice christmas trip on the swan boats how great would that be man that is one of the things i really feel like i missed out on is the swan boats um you know i know they weren't that popular i guess but that seems like it'd be cool be really cool i think they were just too popular uh andrew says second memory <laughs> is a few years later arriving at a barely attended rope drop and running to big thunder by taking the adventure land route yes sir mm -hmm. while That's running with my brothers to get to big thunder all that we could hear in adventure land was the barker bird and the cannon going off at pirates it was not lost on me that is a great memory that nails Oh, so many things. We yes. talk about the Barker bird, that cannon at Pirates. I can hear in my head mm -hmm. uh, without even stopping to think about it. I can hear that sound effect. But uh, the kids today may not know or remember the morning sprint, the yeah. rope drop sprint. And maybe they do. They they still rope drop. Does that, does that still have happen? I, I mean, so. the, the rope drop happens, but... Everything's all fast pass now, and everybody's all That's reserved true. on the true. phone. And uh, because it went in phases, because when we were really little, it was Thunder and Space Mountain. Then mm -hmm. they added Splash Mountain, and that became the main. Factor. That was it. That's my main memory. A lot of I, a lot of sprinting for Splash Mountain. Yeah, I remember when we were real little. There were tips in the Birnbaum guide of the best place to stand along the path to Tomorrowland to get to Space Mountain first. Oh, yeah. Like he advised like a, a certain positions that would be an unimpeded route. But yes, Andrew mentions the Adventureland route. That was the one that I always took. That was my favorite. I thought I was very clever uh, in taking the Adventureland route because not everybody went that way. And it was kind of a shortcut. It was, it was yeah, you really felt clever when you popped out there. Uh, uh, yeah, we would pop out at, uh, I guess, the Sunshine Tree, and uh, people would be uh, coming out of Liberty Square. We'd just yeah, exactly, and we're like way behind you. And then they'd be right. like, where'd those cool guys come from? And be like, suckers. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I remember uh, one morning, man, we got to uh, Splash Mountain, had a whole boat to ourselves because we were that far ahead of everybody else. That was a grand and moment. That was that was a grand moment, and really, you know, it was all downhill from there. You, I mean, that's that's, th that, that's peaking early in life. Yes. <laughs> uh, anyway, Andrew, thank you so much, uh, yes. everybody who emailed in, and uh, for this month, keep it going. Let us hear your Frontierland thoughts, and also let us hear uh, some of your books for Claudia. Some of your books you might hold on to. We really appreciate it. That's a good idea. Yeah. So uh, now, of course, it's time to head into the wild frontier. We've got lots to talk about. Uh, so saddle up and let's see 
what Walt has to say. From Tombstone, Arizona, the Sheriff's Badge of Cochise County. At one time or another, it was worn by some of the most colorful characters of the early West. However, as you dig back through the records, I'm afraid that you find that many of them weren't quite as great in real life as they have become in legend. Some of them wore it for profit, some of them for prestige, and some of them used it like a hunting license standing permit to shoot down anybody who crossed them. There were exceptions, of course, and chief among these I would name John Slaughter. Surely no man ever wanted it less, nor wore it better. At the time he agreed to take the job on, he had already become a substantial man of the community, with a ranch to run and a family to raise. He had no need to build a reputation. He had no axe to grind. However, he had the best reason in all the world for taking the job. He felt it was something he could do to help make his community a better place to live. In past episodes, we've talked about the Davy Crockett phenomenon of the 1950s and its impact on the Disney legacy. Davy's success cast a long shadow, and in his wake, a number of other Western heroes tried out for television superstardom. An early contender for Crockett's throne was Zorro, who didn't appear on the Disney Anthology series, but instead had his own successful ABC program beginning in 1957. That same year, the Disneyland program rolled out its own Crockett follow-up, The Saga of Andy Burnett, which featured Jerome Cortland as the fictional frontiersman. Cortland even appeared on the Disneyland 4th anniversary show to tease the upcoming program and receive the backwoods baton directly from Davy Crockett himself, Best Park. And then there's a very special fellow I hope you're going to meet. Who's that? His name is Andy Burnett. Andy Burnett? Well, a very fine writer by the name of Stuart Edward White wrote a series of classical adventure stories about Andy Burnett. When did it all begin? Hold it there, Walt. Let me tell him. You know, Andy Burnett happens to be a particular favorite of mine. Okay, Fess, it'd be a lot better coming from you. Thank you, Walt. Well, kids, uh, the story started a long time ago. Andy Burnett was a frontier boy from Kentucky who inherited Daniel Boone's rifle. As he grew up, he moved west to cross the country. In a way, the story of Andy growing up is the story of America growing too. 
The times are gone that he once knew. Endless woods and the sky so blue. The trails no man had trod before. The wilderness at the cabin door. The urge to know where the rivers flow. The freedom to up and pack and go. Lucky for us a few men yet. Remember the saga of Andy Burnett. Andy's on the move. Andy won't rest. Andy Burnett, he's a traveling west. He won some friends and made his place With mighty men of a mighty race They took him in to teach him more Of mountain life and mountain lore The laws of trails and trapping streams The danger is not what danger seems Lessons to learn and not forget All part of the saga of Andy Burnett Unfortunately, Andy Burnett was not as well received as Davy Crockett. But with Davy and Zorro's success still fresh in their minds, ABC still wanted more Disney westerns. Walt, however, was skeptical. He thought the television western market was wildly oversaturated at the time and didn't believe that the western trappings were what had made Crockett such a sensation in the first place. He was ready to move on, but ABC persisted. According to historian Jeff Curdy, Former Disney executive Don Tatum recounted a story about a meeting Walt called with ABC when he had simply had enough. After the ABC brass gathered, Walt ambled into the room dressed from head to toe in Western costume, threw his pistols on the large conference table, and said, Okay, you want Westerns? You're going to have Westerns. (laughs) Uh, I mean... Great moments. Yeah. I, I... It's kind of a shame that the the ABC relationship was really toxic. (laughs) Yeah. I'm glad they got out of that, but they were very short-sighted. They were. uh, They were stiffing him on Zorro. Right. And that's the only reason that, and Mickey Mouse Club, that's the only reason that both of those ended. Right. And they could have gone on for who knows, I mean, who knows how long Mickey Mouse Club have gone. Zorro would have gone on for several more years. He even kept Guy Williams on the payroll for years right after um so that that was abc was just being dumb and it's really unfortunate because it hurt it hurt uh i would love more zara man oh i know know. anyway walt decided you want more westerns you're gonna have westerns so we got more westerns the longest running of these serials was texas john slaughter which ran for 17 hour-long episodes on Walt Disney Presents from 1958 until 1961. Starring Tom Tryon, the serial told the story of Slaughter, a real-life Texas Ranger, cattleman, gambler, and sheriff who made men do what they oughta, and if they didn't, they died. In the Crockett tradition, Slaughter had his own trademark look. Let's let Walt explain. A turned-up white Stetson and a pearl-handled gun. My friend Stan Jones has written a song about them. I want you to hear it. Stan? His turned-up white Stetson and pearl-handled gun were known both far and wide. With Stetson so white and a pearl-handled gun swinging on his side. Texas John Slaughter made them do what they order cause it they didn't they died in texas a ranger he had to become and outlaws he 
defied. Oh, Texas, John Slaughter made them do what they oughter, cause if they didn't, they died. His turned-up white Stetson and pearl and gun were known both far and wide, were known both far and wide. As Walt says, the theme song was written and performed by Stan Jones, who is perhaps best known for pinning the Western standard, Ghost Riders in the Sky. Now, this guy's career was a revelation to me, as if Ghost Riders wasn't enough, he even wrote songs for John Ford's The Searchers and Rio Grande. Wow. Yeah, big wow. He was an actor, too. His first work for Disney was in The Adventures of Spin and Marty in 1955. In 1956, he wrote songs for and acted in The Great Locomotive Chase for Disney. Uh, Same year, he wrote Ringle Wrangle, for Westward Ho the Wagons, which is such a banger that we absolutely must play part of it right now. Oh, ringle, wrangle, jingle, jong, jangle. Ha, a mighty fine horse, I'm in love, of course, cause I got be a pretty woman's love. Ringle, wrangle, jingle, jong, jangle. Ha, with my spurs on my boots and I don't give a hoot. I got me a pretty woman's love Where the dollar's worth of beans A new pair of jeans Got a woman to cook and wash And pay Ringle, wrangle, jingle, jong, jangle Ha! And if I die I ain't a-gonna cry Cause I got me a pretty woman's love Yes, I got me a pretty woman's love After that, he wrote songs for and acted in Disney's Ten Who Dared, as well as in episodes of the Daniel Boone series on Walt Disney Presents. He was only 49 when he died of cancer in 1963, but wow, what a resume. That is incredible. I had no idea. I wonder if he was one of those guys in Spin and Marty that was like the stern camp people that are like holding horses and like, you boys do good. Come on now. Yeah, exactly. He's got to be. Uh, yeah, I got to look him up. But he was he was in a lot of them. That's amazing. Uh, and I encourage anybody who hasn't watched that on Disney Plus to go watch it. It's it's fun stuff. Uh, to tie things in a neat bow, Jones was actually born in a town that Slaughter helped found, Douglas, Arizona. Slaughter was even present at Jones's christening which is amazing. Uh, As Walt says in the introduction to the first Texas John Slaughter episode, this proves that the Old West wasn't really that old after all. In fact, Walt claimed that when Slaughter's second wife died in 1941, she owned 100 shares of Disney stock. Oh my gosh, the most shocking revelation of all. Yeah, it's crazy how close that time is to the the Old West is to the mid-century um, Western revival. It's nuts. Uh, yeah, absolutely. The f- I mean, these people were kicking around. It's crazy. When you think about people like, you know, Wyatt Earp went to Hollywood yeah. and like helped with movies and stuff. It's crazy. Uh, the real John Horton Slaughter was born in Louisiana in 1841 before moving to Texas 
where as a young man he became a Texas Ranger and fought the Comanches. When the Civil War broke out, he joined Confederate forces in Texas and afterwards started a cattle driving company with his brother, moving cattle along the Chisholm Trail from Texas to Kansas. He moved around some, heading to New Mexico in the late 1870s to deal in cattle and set up a ranch, but he didn't really settle down until he arrived in Arizona in 1884. There, he purchased the 64,000-acre San Bernardino land grant, a property that he would eventually grow to a quarter million acres, which is pretty amazing to me. Uh, But he found it hard to keep on the ranch. In 1886, he wound up being part of the group which tracked and captured the Apache chief Geronimo. The capture even took place on Slaughter's San Bernardino Grant. That same year, Slaughter was elected sheriff of Cochise County, incidentally the home of the city of Tombstone, And since this was only five years after the gunfight at the O.K. Corral, Slaughter would have known many of the key characters in that event. Slaughter served two terms as sheriff before returning to his ranch, although he would be called back to work in order to serve a term in the territorial legislature in 1907. Even during his time as a rancher, Slaughter saw a lot of action at both the poker table and the end of a gun. Not for nothing did one writer dub him the meanest good guy who ever lived which I enjoy. Uh, When Pancho Villa's men were coming across the border from Mexico to steal his cattle, Slaughter charged into Villa's camp to demand payment. Even at the age of 81, he and his wife Viola wielded shotguns to fend off an attack on their ranch by would-be bandits. Slaughter died in 1922, but his San Bernardino ranch remains today in Arizona as a preserved National Historic Landmark. The first episode of the Disney version of Texas John Slaughter's Life aired on October 3, 1958, during the fifth season of the anthology program. Episodes were directed by Harry Keller and James Nielsen, and written by Frank D. Gilroy, Burt Styler, and Albert E. Lewin. The story begins as Slaughter arrives in Texas to set up a ranch with his fiancée, Addie, played by Norma Moore. There are rumors afoot about rustlers. In fact, he's to be the fifth owner of the ranch he's buying in the last two years. But Slaughter is skeptical until he arrives on the property to find his cattle stolen and his friend and foreman killed. After an attempt on his own life, Slaughter joins the Texas Rangers, to the protests of his fiancée, in order to track down the culprits and unravel a conspiracy involving the notorious Davis gang, who he believes is responsible. Throughout the series, Slaughter combats evildoers, all while trying to balance the demands of justice with his desire to settle down and become a rancher. In addition to Norma Moore as Addie, the show would go on to feature Betty Lynn, Mayberry's own Thelma Lou, as Slaughter's second wife, Viola. It even had a Moochie connection, with the Mooch's younger brother, Brian Corcoran, starring as one of Slaughter's <laughs> children from his first marriage. Yes. You you love it when you have the additional Corcoran, that extra Corcoran in the the fold. Also recurring were Western stalwart Harry Carey Jr. and Daryl Hickman, the older brother of Dobie Gitlis star Dwayne Hickman. Guest stars included Dan Durier and the great Beverly Garland. Starring in Slaughter himself, as we mentioned, was actor Tom Tryon. Born to a prominent Connecticut family in 1926, Tryon was a descendant of someone you and I know well, Jeff, uh, William Tryon. Uh, that's right, and uh, it's not going to be his last mention in the uh, Frontierland saga of these episodes. <laughs> I, very, very strange connections, yes. Yes, yes. 
William Tryon, colonial governor of North Carolina. Uh, Tryon, Tom Tryon, graduated with honors from Yale with a degree in the fine arts before serving in World War II. He would take to the stage afterward, becoming a Broadway understudy in 1952 for the musical Wish You Were Here. After starring in Texas Jones Slaughter, he also appeared as the star of Disney's 1962 film Moon Pilot, but he quit acting when his first novel, The Other, was published in 1971. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. The book was, yeah, the book was on the New York Times bestseller list for more than six months, and uh, Tryon went on to a long career as a successful author. Who knew? Uh, he died in 1991 from cancer at the age of 65. Someday we will get around to talking about Moon Pilot. Oh, yes. Yes, we will. Yeah, little Brian Keith action, mm. little space monkey, a little bit of everything in there. Fighting commies. As for Texas John Slaughter, the show was a success. I read one article about the Disney Western shows, uh, which said that the author had, as a child, missed the first episode of the Slaughter serial, but he knew something was up the next day on the playground when all the kids were wearing their cowboy hats pinned up in the front. Uh, which was a look previously reserved for Western comic relief characters, which Slaughter made a heroic trademark. There you go. So the, the kids were into it. Like Davy Crockett before him, Texas John Slaughter made many appearances at Disneyland during the years he was on the air, and Dale Comics printed his adventures in print format. Several episodes were edited together for a theatrical release of Texas John Slaughter, which debuted overseas in 1960. Multiple slaughter films were eventually created for European markets from episodes of the television show. One lasting legacy of the program can be found in Frontierland today at Walt Disney World. On the sign for the Frontier Trading Post, John Slaughter is listed as Trail Balls. Just make sure you do what you oughta when you're in the neighborhood. of American folklore, a legion of mighty men have left the symbols of their greatness. There was Paul Bunyan's axe, John Henry's hammer, Davy Crockett's rifle. And then, quite unexpectedly, 
one comes upon a tin pot hat, a bag of apple seed, and a holy book. And strangely enough, these are the symbols of one of the mightiest men of all, John Chapman, a real-life pioneer. With the passing years, however, reality has given way to legend. Until today, we know this remarkable man simply as Johnny Appleseed. This is his story, told by an old settler who knew Johnny well. Listen. We just passed the 73rd anniversary of one of my favorite Disney films, 1948's Melody Time. This is wrapping up a rather tough decade for Disney with World War II and the studio having a hard time making money and was the last of the package films that dominated the decade, starting with Fantasia in 1940. This film would be similar to its predecessor, 1946's Make Mine Music, but I think this one is a better film by a wide margin. I think the segments in this go so well together and have some of Disney's strongest work from the period. Yeah, it this, these are fascinating movies that are often overlooked and kind of get don't get the respect that Fantasia gets, but uh-huh. there's a lot of good stuff in them for sure. And a lot of fun, very experimental kind of weirdness that yes. Disney doesn't do anymore. And they were allowed to kind of cut loose and have some fun. That's right. The combination of experimental weirdness and music centered stuff makes it really in my wheel. I mean, it's probably yeah one of my top five, I would say. Two of these segments would definitely be considered Frontierland segments, those being Johnny Appleseed and the grand finale of Pecos Bill. Each segment would be paired with a recording star, and the talent of these singers and performers with the directors, writers, and animators work very well together. Another interesting feature of this was that each segment has a different team of composers, making for quite the eclectic blend of music. Uh, for Johnny Appleseed, Disney recruited... Dennis Day for the voice talent. Dennis came to fame under the wing of Jack Benny on his radio show as an Irish tenor beginning in 1939 after graduating college and working with Jack Benny until Benny's death in 1974. Hmm. After his service in the war, Day would not only appear in Benny's show, but have a radio show of his own called A Day in the Life of Dennis Day. Day was not only known as a singer, but was an excellent mimic and impressionist hence his ability to provide the voice of Johnny, the narrator, and Johnny's angel in this. What was it with the Irish tenor obsession in this era? <laughs> That's a good question. Like everybody had to have their own, like, I mean, they had one in uh, the Golden Horseshoe. Golden Horseshoe, That's everybody right. Everybody had to have their own sin- signature Irish tenor. Had a singing song. cowboy and an Irish tenor, it's required. Uh, for the songs, Disney recruited songwriters Kim Gannon and Walter Kent, frequent collaborators who had written the classic I'll Be Home for Christmas just five years prior. Uh, Together they would write the songs, Oh, the Lord is good to me, getting the wagons rolling west, and there's a lot of work to do. Here's a little bit of that. The Lord is good to me, and so I thank the Lord for giving me the things I need, the sun and rain and an apple seed. Yes, he's been good to me. I owe the Lord so much for everything I see. I'm certain if it weren't for him, there'd be no apples on this limb. He's been good to me. Oh, here am I neath the blue, blue sky, a-doin' as I please. 
singing with my feather friends, falling with a songs it's just such a good feeling in these it's really great music yeah it really is and i had no idea they'd written i'll be home for christmas that is a great pedigree to come into something with that's right that's right uh, this segment also had some great mary blair art direction it kind of looks like a golden book uh in its art and milt call eric larson and ollie johnston were involved in johnny's design so that's hard to beat winston hibbler wrote the script so I mean, that's another cool thing about these movies is it's kind of before some of the people go off to Imagineering and some of the people go off to live action. It's just like the dream team working on everything. So this is just so much talent in one place. Yeah. When you look at the credits for these films, it's like everybody's an all-star and would go on to be an all-star in different fields. Right. And that's the crazy part. According to an article by Jim Fanning, when Hibbler presented the narration to Walt, he was moved to tears. Uh, we have discussed in a few episodes where Walt was beginning to move in a different direction that would eventually lead to historical films and documentaries and Davy Crockett. And, uh, you know, Johnny Appleseed and Davy Crockett are very similar. And Appleseed, who in reality was John Chapman, represented a truly fantastical personality that existed in real life and embodied values that were important to Walt. Clearly, this must have felt like the right direction to him. Yeah, that's very interesting. I'd love to know. More. I wonder if there he ever had this on the anthology show and like did a little introduction talking about how much Johnny Appleseed meant to him because that would be interesting. It's, it's to interesting see. that he would be so moved by that. Yeah, uh, I guess he loved apples. Yeah, know? it's true. <laughs> Was it on his eat. list in his kitchen with beans? <laughs> <laughs> tall tale straight from the chuck wagon, just the way the old timers used to tell it. According to them, Pecos Bill was the roughest, toughest, rootinest, tootinest, shootinest cowpoke that ever lived. Well, any story about old Pecos is bound to be right strong medicine, so maybe it's best to sashay into it kind of gentle-like. Pecos Bill was an even more ambitious segment, running around 22 minutes in length. 
and combining live actors with animation, which is a hallmark. Um, this segment would be directed by Clyde Geronimi and written by Joe Rinaldi and Erdman Pinner, all Disney fixtures. Milk Call and Ward Kimball would provide design and animation for the characters, and songwriting duties would be handed to Elliot Daniel and Johnny Lang, who just a few years ago had written the song That's What Uncle Remus Said for Song of the South. Oh, very good. Uh, that's right. Lang would assist in the writing of the song Mule Train and be the father of actress Hope Lang, who would go on to have a lengthy career as an actress. Oh, wow. And uh, Daniel would write the song Lavender Blue Dilly Dilly just one year later for So Dear to My Heart and would also eventually write the I Love Lucy theme. So, wow, I did yeah. not know that. It's <laughs> some serious business. Uh, for the Pecos Bill segment, there were two really iconic songs. And of course, there's a titular song and there's Blue Shadows on the Trail, both of which were performed by Roy Rogers and the Sons of the Pioneers, along with the song Sweet Sue, which is also good. Uh, Rogers, who was born Leonard Franklin Sly, which I just had to include because that's quite the name, um, <laughs> moved to Los Angeles with his family in 1930 and formed the Pioneer Trio in 1933 with Bob Nolan and Tim Spencer. Uh, their unique songwriting was based on Western subjects, which strangely enough was novel at the time for Western music, which I find interesting. And their song Tumbling Tumbleweeds got them a contract with Decca Records. They were, I think, the third artist... Uh, American artist on Decca Records. So. Weird. Eventually, Roy would appear in a few Gene Autry movies and replace him when uh, Autry left his contract at Republic Pictures, becoming the highest-grossing cowboy in 1943 before his move into TV and fast food lore. But yeah, he was a big star at this time. Yeah, definitely. And would remain so throughout <laughs> yeah. the, the boomer era. For, for sure. the remainder, yeah. Uh, by this time, Roy had been replaced in the Sons of the Pioneers because, you know, they wanted to keep gigging. And the band would go on to use this model to replace all its members eventually, including the original songwriters, Spencer and Nolan, in 1949. Continue rotating members down to this very day where they are still active. Um, I just always assumed Blue Shadows on the Trail was a Sons of the Pioneers song. It matches so well to their style. Yeah, and it's one of those songs that you would hear outside of Disney quite right. often. Right. I mean, uh, Three Amigos, for instance. That's right. <laughs> um, and it, it, at any sort of cowboy-themed thing, I think of a lot of times in, you know, Scouts, when we would go west, uh, we went to Philmont, and it's so, sort of something you would always hear cowboy bands sing. So it mm -hmm. transcended Disney for sure. Yeah, and kind of Biggest Bill kind of does too. <laughs> Bill was quite a cowboy down in Texas And the western superman to say the least He was the roughest, toughest critter Never known to be a quitter Cause he never had no fear of man or beast So yippee-i-a-i-a, yippee-i-o For the toughest critter west of the Alamo Pegasus Bill at least makes its way into all kinds of Disney music all over the parks. You know, it makes a notable appearance on Wally Bogue's uh, appearance on The Muppet Show, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's an early infusion of Frontierland into the Disney DNA and uh, would remain so for years to come. And in fact, you know, this kind of live action segment on this would be, it just seems like Disneyland already, you know, where they're all sitting around the campfire and they're kind of western garb it feels like you're in frontier land it's very adjacent 
Um, this would be another segment that Walt would champion after having such a tough decade in the 40s that started with labor disputes and had the war with all its financial challenges. According to Ward Kimball, after the almost never effusive Walt had viewed a pencil test of the segment in its early form, he claimed, that's the greatest inspirational lift I've had in six years. <laughs> so he was feeling it. I mean, Walt he never was. said anything like that. <laughs> well, that makes me uh, that makes me happy that it finally emerged. For, for a long time, it was sort of censored and hidden away, but now That's you exactly can actually right. see it. It's on the you Disney Plus. See it in its proper context, and all of it looks good. So check out Melody Time and enjoy that music. Shades of night are falling as the wind begins to sigh, and the world. Frontierland is an area of the Magic Kingdom which has lost relatively little over the years. When you consider the size of the land, it has been surprisingly light historically in terms of restaurants, shops, and attractions, so there hasn't been that much to lose. In fact, it's mostly seen additions, from Tom Sawyer Island to Big Thunder Mountain to Splash Mountain. When the Magic Kingdom opened in 1971, the centerpiece of Frontierland fact its only attraction was the country bear jamboree and this attraction has been the site of all the land's major losses over the years from the two special seasonal shows which have long ago been abandoned to the fact that the classic attraction itself was trimmed by about a third in 2012 the country bears first seasonal overlay in fact the first seasonal overlay of any disney attraction was the Country Bear Christmas Special, which made its debut in November of 1984. This show had been about two years in the making and was the work of Imagineers Dave Fighton and Mike Sprout. Composer George Wilkins, a Disney standby, was brought on to adapt a number of Christmas tunes into the Country Bear style. 
He also wrote a few completely new numbers for the show alongside Fightin' and Sprout. For the show, Grizzly Hall was decorated to the nines with Christmas lights, tinsel, and evergreens. It was a look that really suited the theme of the architecture. Jeff, this was really a confluence of my aesthetic interests that worked out nicely. Yeah, what a cool thing. I mean, you, you know, like you said, it's a first seasonal overlay. This would become a thing that Disney would try in a lot of attractions. But this is a real natural fit. It's, a you know, kind of, I don't know, from the outside, a seemingly easy thing to change over once you have the show written. And it looks so great. Yeah, you had the uh, the lights strung around, uh, you know, the all their antlers. And mm-hmm. it was really cool. Yeah, it, it looked great from the outside. It looked great inside the theater. All of the costumes will, you know, we'll talk about that. Looked good. And, you know, if you can find video of, I'm going to mention that the, the show still runs in Japan. The way they decorate the theater there, it is just spectacular. Just spectacular. So Christmas and the Country Bears, what a perfect mix. Uh, new Christmassy stage backdrops were painted for the show by the scenic shop at Paramount Studios, and seasonal winter wear costumes were made for all the characters. What really stands out in my mind were the sunbonnets in their little red and green outfits, and of course, like you mentioned, the heads mounted on the wall, Melvin with the Christmas lights in his antlers, and Max the deer with the electric light red nose. That's, That's what really sticks out for me. Nice touches, Yes. Made a big impression as a kid. As I mentioned, the show combined existing tunes like Deck the Halls, Blue Christmas, Let It Snow, and Winter Wonderland with new numbers like Hungry as a Bear and Big Al's Another New Year. The Sunbonnets sang Sleigh Ride, accompanied by slideshow images drawn by Disney legend X Atencio. One of my favorites, Teddy Bear, performed the Christmas song with Henry. Uh, this is something I really wish we had a, a full song recording of because it's, I love the song and I love these guys. So let's have a listen. Here she is, that charming Chanteuse of the Ski Slopes, swinging Teddy Barra. My, my. Gosh. Hush up, you two. Just nuts roasting on an open fire. Jack Frost nipping at your nose Yuletide carols being sung by a choir And folks dressed up like Eskimos Everybody knows I'm offering this simple phrase to kids from 1 to 92 Although it's been said Many times, many ways Merry Christmas to you I sure do enjoy singing with you, Teddy Why, thank you, Henry Y'all want to come up and sign my cast? <laughs> Soon as I can find a pen, I'll be there. The Christmas special was presented seasonally until 2005 when it fell victim to budget cuts. A version of the show with some changes to the song lineup continues to be performed every year at Tokyo Disneyland. Like I said, look it up online if you can. 
There are great videos of it, and the theater looks just spectacular with its Christmas decorations. So successful was the Christmas special that the creative team immediately reunited to put together a summer show, the Country Bear Vacation Hoedown, which was performed at Walt Disney World from 1986 until 1992, and at Disneyland until the Country Bears were evicted in 2001. This show features a much looser definition of country than the original show, with numbers like California Bears, a twist on the Beach Boys classic California Girls, and Singing in the Rain creeping into the mix. There was also an increased focus on more recent country tunes like On the Road Again, Rocky Top, and Thank God I'm a Country Bear, a.k.a. (laughs) Thank God I'm a Country Boy. Jeff, how do you compare the different versions of the Bears over the years? You know, I always am kind of against this uh, historically because it was there for so long and it just stayed there and it didn't make any sense and I missed the original. So uh, I like the Christmas one because it would come and go and then you go back to the original Country Bear show. Um, I did not like the music of this as much. You know, I like the aesthetic of that kind of Bakersfield sound of the original one. And like you said, this one is like a little bit more loose and a little bit more modern. Um, you know, I guess the original one was modern to its time, but it never felt modern to me. So it was just felt classic, which I liked. Yeah, it was much more rootsy. This yes. was much more poppy, I guess yeah. you could say. Um, and like you said, it, when it became a permanent fixture for so long, And, of course, being a kid, you kind of forgot the original show as time went by because it sort of faded from memory. So when the original show came back, it was a real revelation. Uh, That's right. It was like, yeah, this is is a great show. And, uh, you know, I like the seasonal seasonal aspect of the Christmas show. But like you said, if if you're going to have one most of the year, I, I still say stick with the original. As I mentioned, the Vacation Hoedown has been gone from Florida since 1992, but like the Christmas show, it is still performed annually at Tokyo Disneyland. Uh, They run all three shows every year. Although, again, there are differences in its Japanese song lineup when compared to the stateside version. I had not been aware of this previously Hmm. until I was doing research for this. And when you look up the song differences, it's interesting what what they change up, what they leave out. Those who remember visiting the Country Bears back in the day might also recall the very cool way that the attraction ended. As guests filed out of the theater, they entered a second space, where today you dump into Pecos Bills. This was the mile-long bar, a narrow space which adjoined what was then simply called Pecos Bills Cafe. To the left, as you exited the Bear Show, was a narrow bar, but ahead was a wall with the heads of Max, Buff, and Melvin, all hanging as they did inside the Bears' playhouse itself. The heads were fully animated and sang as you exited the theater, continuing the song Come Again with new lyrics inviting people to come on in to the mile-long bar. The wall they were mounted on was a partition between the mile-long bar and the Pecos Beal ordering area, so you could literally walk up to the heads and examine them closely, just get right up to them. They would blink and nod and move, and the effect was pretty great as a kid i knew they weren't real but 
you kind of buy into an unspoken collective agreement that they are. And, you know, it's something to be able to give a nod to Max, who was my personal favorite at the time, and have him blink back in return. I knew that he knew that I was a cool dude who was on the level, you know? <laughs> what, did, what did you think about these heads? How did they impress you? <sighs> well, back when I was a child and I, and they were there, uh, you know, I, I feel like I, I feel like they contributed to my long standing fear of taxidermy. That yeah. you know, they would go completely still and blink slowly and then come to life. And so I think, you know, sub on a subconscious level I was always afraid that uh, you know, the animals were gonna do that. But now, I mean, this is one of my favorite little details that is not there anymore. This, like in the sunshine tree, these things that have no value as far as anything except just to add to the quality of the whole thing you know it's just a great little thing that's there where people are just filing out you know it's not a place for people to congregate and watch it it's just there to be an extra layer and i think you know even to go so far as to write another little song is just such a great detail and that i miss that kind of stuff yeah, absolutely agreed. And like you said, they would do their number when the theater show would exit. And then they would go quiet, but they would still, you know, be hanging there quietly on the wall, but they would blink and they would occasionally kind of shift. Right. And so it was not like they were turned off. Right. They were the, they were there, they were just being quiet and they were still blinking and sort of like thinking. And it's amazing. The wall. Uh, it was a such a fun touch, and of course, nowadays you probably can do it because people are insane. But you could get you know right up to them, get your picture with them, whatever you want. That's right. That's right. The mile long bar, and indeed the entire complex, including the country bears and Pecos Bills, were originally sponsored by Frito Lay and Pepsi Cola. Back in the day, the Magic Kingdom was a divided park with the west side serving Pepsi and the east side serving Coca-Cola. <laughs> Which is always so funny to me. <laughs> I know. It's so weird. And then there would be like neutral spaces in the middle where they, right. you know, where they would meet. You could get both. Wow. Yeah. Town, Town Square Cafe. That's both right. on tap. Uh, it wasn't until Epcot Center came along with its massive Coke sponsorship of American Adventure the parks made their change to Coke only. So Pepsi was purged. It was August of 1971 when Pepsi and Frito-Lay signed a 10-year sponsorship agreement for the Bears Mile Long Bar Pickus Bill Complex, a deal that was renegotiated in 1978. This sponsorship explains the line in the original Country Bears show when Henry says that we've got a lot to give. This echoed Pepsi's slogan at the time, You've got a lot to live, and Pepsi's got a lot to give. <laughs> that always just seemed like when I would hear that line, I'd be like, "Okay, uh, you've got a lot." I'm not questioning whether or not you have a lot to give. It just seems so superfluous, but <laughs> yeah, it does, especially the way it delivers. Because we've got a lot to give. <laughs> like, okay, that's <laughs> sure good for you. Okay, good. Go ahead. Uh, when the sponsorship was signed, it was promised that the mile-long bar would have, quote, honky-tonk piano music, sandwiches, Pepsi, and Frito corn chips, mm -hmm. which is all you need, really. That's right. The bar itself was quite narrow, but the mile-long effect was achieved by mirrors on the left and right-hand sides, which made it appear that the bar stretched into infinity. 
As predicted, it served sandwiches and Fritos. The background music loop included additional tracks recorded by the Stonemans, who we talked about in episode 10 when we discussed the origins of the Country Bears song selection. Several of these tracks for the Mile Long Bar were featured on side B of the Country Bear Jamboree final soundtrack release back in the 1970s. Excellent stuff. And man, what a place this was. Vibe for days. It's total vibe. And I hate we didn't spend more time there as kids because, you know, we were probably more interested in the burgers going on next door. Right. But, oh, what a space it was. And I remember I, being you know, very if, impressed by the effect of the Mile Long Bar. I mean, we would stop and admire for sure oh definitely definitely if this were still space today i would spend uh, quite a quite a bit of time in there kind of kind of knott's berry farm vibe to it very much so yes in a way uh very very nice at least at first the mylong bar apparently had live entertainment as well the Frito Pepsi announcement had mentioned that honky-tonk piano, and in November of 1971, it was said that Dead Eye Dolly, quote, blasts away with husky saloon tunes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Later that fall, a report said that in the Mile Long Bar, quote, a gold pistol packing hostess belts out songs with the help of three fugitives from a taxidermist mounted on the wall. <laughs> I uh, I can't find any mentions of Dead Eye Dolly after fall 1971, although she apparently did make an appearance in the opening dedication parade that October. This is a character that needs to make a comeback. Oh, for sure. And man, like imagining a performance in concert with the heads that we were just talking about. I mean, come on. That um, would be so great. Yeah, the, the space had a tiny little stage. And uh, I think that Honky Tonk Piano would also have a player piano feature that could play, too. Um, I bet you're right, yeah. So cool. Man. Uh, picture Dead-Eye Dolly sitting on top of that piano beside the talking heads. That would be that would be With so it. great. That's right. Uh, I'll also note that Saltwater Express performed in the Mile Long Bar for grad night in May of 1972. Oh. So that would have also been something to see. Man, cancel my plans. This has become my new favorite spot. I know. In any case, the bar was unfortunately closed in 1998 amidst the purges of the era. And also meant the removal of the animatronic animal heads. The space was incorporated into Pecos Bill's ordering area. Space that seems to be hardly ever used anyway. So that continues to cause me angst. Of course, Pecos Bills has been there since the very beginning, though it had a smaller footprint. Uh, it took over the mile long bar, as Michael just mentioned. It also wrapped around to meet with El Pirata and El Perico, 
and the same 1998 refurbishment, meaning an end to the locations of the Golden Galleon and La Princesa de Cristal locations in Caribbean Plaza. So Pecos Bill is hungry and will consume <laughs> us all. Yeah, it expanded out and up. That's right. Uh, in August 1971, when the Pepsi deal was signed, the cafe was said to have, quote, a menu of foods indigenous to America's Southwest. Uh, yet Pecos Bill's Cafe wasn't fully operational until November of 1971, and even by then, all reports kind of tell of a more familiar menu of traditional fare. Uh, Pecos Bill's was at the end of the park. It still is today, but it felt even more so back then before the connection to Caribbean Plaza and Adventureland. The desert feel was really well executed here with Peruvian pepper trees and Jerusalem thorns, and the little twig ceilings providing slight shading on the patios. Uh, of course, inside you have that cool little courtyard. That's always where we go when we eat there. It's a cool spot. Yeah, that's that's the place to go. Uh, in 1985, Steve, Ber- Steve Birnbaum reports hamburgers, steak sandwiches, hot dogs. Uh, though I did find a chili and beans recipe from the 1970s we may just have to make in the fall. That sounded oh, yeah. very, very promising. Uh, though Pecos Bill would throw in Mexican dishes into their menu from time to time, for a while, the Mile Long Bar would be the one offering Mexican dishes, where you could get uh, burritos, churros, and fritos as part of the fair. Oh, okay. I mean, so. So it's that's very, you know, I think of this as comparing to the similar uh, location in Disneyland, which does serve Mexican food. And, right. And uh, it's, it's never been really consistent here. But uh, apparently over the years, they've tried it a few times. That's right. And now, you know, more than ever, their kind of Mexican presence is more fully realized, I guess, as appetites change. I think now they have like a burger on the menu, but some Mexican dishes as well. So they live in harmony. Uh, But we could probably do a whole podcast on the evolution of the Fixins Bar at Pecos Bills. Uh, Michael, you're probably losing the mile long bar to pick up those giant Fixins Bars. I'm not saying it's worth it, but it is noteworthy. Well, yeah, it was for a while when the Fixins Bar was at its peak, but sadly, that day that day is long gone. I think at this I point, know. but know. yeah, this was a prime Fixin location for a long. This and the Backlot Express at mm-hmm. MGM were the Fixins palaces of Disney Burger lore, and for a while, the burgers here were very notable. Or yes, you could get like a. I believe a bacon barbecue cheeseburger. What was the one that had like onion rings on it? Yeah, they remember that's that. Right, that's right when they got the the Angus there, and they uh, you could get the onion rings. Well, you could get it with onion rings, and then put the grilled onions inside the onion rings. From the yes, yes, the onion volcano. You could put grilled onions and grilled <laughs> mushrooms. Yes, inside. The onion, the onion rings, the perfect description of it. Oh, those those were a heady time. As much as I love the Mexican and am in favor of themed appropriate food, that was a good burger. Yeah, when that burger was going, uh, you know, I haven't had it in a long time, but it was notable. It was very good when the Fixins Bar was at its prime. Yeah. As we said, there wasn't a whole lot of frontier land back in the day before pirates of the caribbean was built the land was a dead end and the only passageway to Adventureland was the cut through in front of the country bears took a while for the shops and like jeff said pecos bills to open up down at the end of the land so on opening day it was more like a ghost town than anything else 
but perched way down at the end of the land, slightly north of where the Tom Sawyer Island rafts depart today, was the launching point for the Davy Crockett Explorer Canoes. Canoes were a Frontierland tradition going way back to Disneyland's early days, and these 35-person boats gave guests a chance to get down close to the water on a scenic people-powered trip around the rivers of America. Two cast members clad in coonskin caps would accompany each expedition, one in the front of the boat and one in the rear. Typically, the cast member in the bow would tell corny, jungle cruise-ish jokes about the various sights to be seen along the river. This, along with the keelboats, made the river a much more active place to be in the olden times. Uh, I found uh, there's a site that everybody, I'm sure, knows. It's been around forever, Walt Dated World. And they had some sample jokes that the canoe (laughs) pilots used to tell. And uh, some of them are typically corny, as you might expect. Some of them uh, incredibly inappropriate in light of modern (laughs) sensibilities. (laughs) <laughs> One I'm was sure. about the burning settler's cabin and how it, you know, it used to be the house of my old flame, but she like, <laughs> I mean, the essential joke was it was his girlfriend's house, but she dumped him and he burned it down with lots <laughs> of like fire puns in it. Wow. So, uh, yeah, it, it was, it was a different time. Uh, the Explorer canoes operated seasonally, mostly throughout their run, were closed in 1993, another casualty of that perilous decade. But I feel like they they survived even after that for cast members. Yes, they would have the canoe races yeah. all the time. Yes, cast member canoe races. So even though it was off limits to the public, uh, cast members could still get out there and paddle around. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if this is less to do with uh, the rest of the 90s uh, nightmare and more of, you know, they built that extra pathways, uh, that little boardwalk around Splash Mountain. I mean, I wonder if they just kind of ran out of room. I mean, back then you had the keelboats, the rafts, Tom Sawyer Island, the riverboat, and then (laughs) the canoes. And then you're kind of building into the rivers of America. I wonder if they just kind of ran out of space over there. That is a good point. I hadn't even thought of that. And when you see original photos of Frontierland from the 70s, there's so much more space. Before they built the the riverfront walkway that you're talking about, uh, which I guess that accompanied Splash Mountain. That was for Splash Mountain yes. traffic. Am I, yes. am I right about that? That's right. The whole way down, yeah. The whole way down. And, you know, the river used to be much, much bigger, and especially down in front of where Splash Mountain is today, it cut way, way into the bank, and there was just so much more room to maneuver. So that could have been a factor. That's right. I mean, yeah, I it, it took away so much beautiful landscaping along the banks of the rivers of America and the kind of, uh, it felt less like a kind of swimming pool over there when you're right by Frontierland. I mean, I, it was necessary to find some place for people to walk, especially to bypass the parade. That was such a bottleneck. And especially when Splash Mountain opened, it just put it above and beyond. You had to have that pathway, but you just wonder if there was another way for them to do it. Yeah, it lost a lot because you had the river coming straight up to the bank and a very sort of tapered bank coming up out of the water with, you know, creek rock and lawns, nice lawns where the right. ducks would sit and lots of nice landscaping. And now it just feels like a wharf. Uh, and you right. realize why they had to do it. But 
I always thought it would be great if they went around the north side of the river and developed that, and then you could go all the way around, and then maybe the traffic wouldn't be so heavy just through that one corridor. I think that would have been a great place to put Slash Mountain, too, with the theming. Uh, it's kind of a little different than Frontierland, you know? It's just yeah. slightly different, so uh, it kind of is a little cognitive disconnect. I mean, the thing that we're, we haven't mentioned is that, of course, uh, as some of you know, the great big Thunder Mesa was supposed to be the end of Frontierland, and you kind of take that away, and uh, it's just kind of nothing over there. <laughs> it's just like it, when it first opens, and they gradually place things in there uh, some of it make more sense of the other than the other i mean i think big thunder seems much more intentional um because it was on part of that pad that was set aside for thunder mace and it was in that style so you're kind of moving out towards the desert through frontier land and it 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 looks like a great backdrop to the land i think splash mountain doesn't work quite as well yeah as as much as i love splash mountain it is from a thematic standpoint, really kind of a disaster in where it is located (laughs) because you have this really wonderful sweep from Liberty square. You've got colonial East coast America and the South and you move through the sort of Midwest, right about the diamond horseshoe. Then you move westward even more. And then by the time you get down to Pecos bill, you're down in the Southwest And then that's supposed to continue, like you said, to Thunder Mesa and, of course, Big Thunder being part of that. Uh, It all, it was such a great flow. But then Splash Mountain is just a big sore thumb right in the middle of it. And I would like so much more if Splash Mountain had been built on the north side of the river and maybe a sort of southern themed area that would have been, that would have been a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, it would have been cool. And, And just thinking about that kind of flat, uh, desert rock face backdrop would have been really amazing um, for Thunder Mesa. And you've got, of course, all kinds of kinetics with the mine train and the Western River. And then maybe some, you know, at times they had the uh, mule pack <laughs> ride there and the mm-hmm. people on top, all kinds of ideas. So uh, it was an idea that would have been the perfect end to the land as far as a visual standpoint, but never happened. Sure. Uh, yeah. So the rivers themselves have changed very little aside from making room for these two large attractions. Visitors to magic kingdom in 1971 would have just seen a big expanse of land with some totem poles on a small peninsula that would be cut into the river a bit. Now that's kind of where thunder mountain is now, as we said, uh, those totem poles would hold on for years around big thunder and still linger uh, between the exit of Big Thunder and the mostly unused extra Tom Sawyer dock. That was right where the Explorer canoes used to depart. That's where they had those. Uh, these poles would match the ones found in the Disneyland Indian Village, though I somehow doubt they were the exact same ones as they've lived for 50 years in Florida. Uh, maybe they're made out of fiberglass. Disney seemed to learn their lesson there and not build stuff out of wood as much. Yeah, and uh, these were kind of lost in the woods for a long time right? in the undergrowth until they finally went around and did some landscaping a few years ago. And it's kind of like finding a evidence of a lost civilization. I know. I took a picture at one time in the, you know, mid-2000s. <laughs> they were just in like a thicket of trees just growing all around it. And it was like, this is so bizarre for them. I'm like, 
to do, you know, it's like so obviously a problem. <laughs> but mm-hmm. They finally figured it out and got it right. A riverboat crew has to be on the lookout for many dangers. The river is always changing its shape and character. An experienced pilot learns to recognize ripples on the river's surface. It may signal a new shoal or shallow water. Some folks out this way have taken to help keep river traffic moving safely. Folks like Beacon Joe yonder off the port bow. Ahoy, Beacon! Joe maintains beacons that light the way for night travel on the river. He also puts up markers where there's been changes in the river bottom. Right now, it looks like Beacon and his dog Rufus are just relaxing. That was from an older narration on the Liberty Bell provided by Disney great Ron Schneider. At this time, he was the narrator of both the Riverboat and the Walt Disney World Railroad, and both featured Beacon Joe Spiels, um, which is interesting. You know, two attractions talking about the same guy. But I did like the days when both of these voices were done by Schneider. It was kind of a nice little combo. Yeah, it's a... Uh, very nostalgic thing to hear. I also like the backstory on Beacon Joe. Uh, why <laughs> Why is he named Beacon Joe? Well, now we know. That's right. They could have make a whole movie about that for Disney Plus. Well, it could, it could be an His IP. That's story. right. A limited series, perhaps. Yeah. Um, Beacon. Beacon Joe. Now available right. to uh, subscribe. <laughs> whatever is the uh, plus tier subscriber. That's right. <laughs> Uh, Beacon Joe's cabin in the Indian village would grace the shores of the rivers of America from opening day, but Beacon and the American Indians would not move in until sometime in 1973 in conjunction with the Tom Sawyer Island project. So it was just an empty shack and teepees. Uh, Beacon, of course, would be joined by his loyal dog, Rufus. Now, Beacon was always a favorite of mine as I took up his name as a nom de plume in the early days of the blog, uh, here at Progress City USA. Little did I know at the time he was quite the international traveler. I was beyond pleased when I saw him in the bayous of Louisiana in the Blue Bayou and Disneyland's Pirates of the Caribbean, which I did not know, uh, sadly without Rufus. He also appears in Tokyo on the banks of Big Thunder Mountain and in Thunder Mesa in Disneyland Paris's Frontierland on the shores of their Big Thunder, which of course is their island in the middle of the river. Now, yeah, I remember that just being one of my favorite Disneyland moments when we went through the blue Bayou for the first time. And then there was beacon Joe. That was really exciting. That was fun. Yeah. Beacon Joe is a Mark Davis creation. And like so many audio animatronics exists in many locations and different guys, including in the jail of pirates, of the Caribbean and haunted mansion. Mark Davis was charged with designing a lot of the show elements on the rivers of America at Walt Disney world that last to this day including Beacon Joe's shack and the river navigation markers that Beacon supposedly moves around to help the riverboat navigate. In concept art, we see dead trees floating along in the rivers of America, with the navigation markers being placed throughout, which would have added another level of realism, but I imagine wouldn't fly with the people who want the park to look clean. A bunch of dead stumps (laughs) floating around in the... (laughs) Yeah, that was probably a, a conflict. And also maintaining your dead stumps out in the river. That's right. Uh, Davis also did art for Wilson's Cave Inn, where we see the keelboat docked and some laundry laid out. Now, Wilson's Cave Inn has one of my favorite soundtracks of all time. It's either just part of the Pirates of the Caribbean audio or 
has an adjacent feeling to it that may or may not have involved alcohol in the recording process. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a coveted, a coveted music <laughs> treasure that we're on the lookout for. <laughs> uh, and Davis also designed the pattern on the teepees in the uh, little Indian camp uh, to be historically accurate. So, Grandpa oh, wow. Mark, thank you. Less accurate was the fact that surrounding the release of Pocahontas, a static display of Algonquin Indian huts was placed along the banks of the rivers of America, during which the railroad would play the song Colors of the Wind as part of their audio. More recently, in the current narration of the riverboat, I find the mental gymnastics around this village pretty humorous. Captain, Indian village to port. Now that's something you don't see much out this way. Uh, that's an Algonquin Indian village. Uh, looks to be from the Powhatan tribe. Uh, usually they stay further east. I've seen Seminole and Miami this far west, and of course Shoshone, Blackfeet, and Crow, but I've never seen Algonquins out here. Lots of game out this way. I've seen moose and deer and plenty of other critters along the shoreline. Uh, could be why the Powhatans are out this far, you know, just following the food trail. <laughs> you know, just following the food trail. <laughs> that, is, that is amazing. That Exposition. is so hilarious to me <laughs> that they realized enough that it, well, this is thematically a problem, and then went out of their way to address it in a way that is kind of ridiculous. But... Story your way out of it. Story is everything. Yeah. You know, they don't belong. These Inuit people, you don't find them this far south, but maybe uh, maybe there was a cold snap and they just came on vacation. I mean, I feel like that thing is not too much of an institution just to take down at this point. But, you right? know, according to, like, you know, Frank, when we interviewed Frank Stanek, he was all poo-poo on the Walt Disney World Railroad, saying it didn't have enough show value. So maybe they're just desperate for some show value. And of course, we had a... Mark Davis moved those those famous frogs and alligators out there to the railroad. So, yeah, there know. have been so many vignettes and vignettes that he drew up that were never built. And uh, there was like a big program to kind of plus, plus it up with something to see. And that still kind of faded only halfway. But yeah, like you said, even though it's been there, gosh, 25 years at this point, um, you don't feel like the Pocahontas Village is enough of an institution that it <laughs> that they wouldn't just get rid of it. It doesn't have animatronics or there aren't That's people right. there. It's just yeah. static, like bowls of like fish and right. corn and <laughs> like a little you know hut. Yeah, I would and also feel the need to point out that in the previous train narration, the the guy would say, and if you listen very carefully, you'll hear Pocahontas singing on the wind or whatever. And then it would play Colors of the Wind, but at like a million decibels. It was so loud, yeah. It was so loud. So I just, I always thought it was hilarious. If you listen very carefully, you'll hear Pocahontas. <laughs> Have you <laughs> You didn't. It was like startlingly loud. Yes, yes. So... Yeah, I think the rivers could probably use a little plussing up along the way. You know, it's funny. I never had any problem with the railroad until I went on Disneyland's. And then you go on their river. Yes. And there's just stuff everywhere. So, you know, at the time, the the Disney Walt Disney World's riverboat was built, uh, they used the Davis sketches to kind of pump up Disneyland's riverboat. 
but they just never kind of kept up with uh with disneyland exactly just that stuff. that beaver pond at disneyland yeah like the yes. animatronic beavers it's amazing oh. you, without that it's just not the same that's right there's magic in the wind and a brightness in the sky there's a promised land awaiting and we'll get there by and by westward oh the wagons always westward oh westward oh the wagons America's in motion and our hopes are turning west. Let's all get a going for a new land's always best. Westward roll the wagons, westward roll and far. Westward roll the wagons, for Oregon's our goal. So that wraps up our first part of our Frontierland month. And we'll be back soon with some more stories from uh, Walt Disney World's Frontierland. We will finish our tour of that for the Remember the Magic, and we will uh, have some more stories for you. So stay tuned for that. Uh, Michael, this is a time where we check in and see if we have any new Patreon signups. Anybody sign up? Absolutely. We'd like to welcome Andrew and Kyle, both who joined our Patreon in the last month. They will be getting access to early downloads of our episodes and uh, all sorts of other goodies. We, of course, do our monthly live stream for our Silver Level subscribers, and that's a lot of fun. So if you're interested in checking out what we have to offer, go to patreon.com slash progresscityusa for more info. That's right. We uh, appreciate those of you who have who have been chipping in and always our live stream comes at the end of the month uh so stay tuned for that you can also be in touch with us on twitter michael's username is at progress city usa and mine is at jeff g crawford and you can email us as michael has challenged you to do earlier in the episode the email is podcast at progress city usa.com i also challenge you to give us a review on your podcast platform of choice we might have to read some of those too coming up um, there's some, there's some good ones already up. Some, some funny names, but please review us on that. <laughs> it does help us out. You know, I will say that I, I never look at reviews because I'm an anxious wreck, but, uh, I did look the other night because people were talking about podcast reviews and I got to wondering and it was super nice. People were really, really, really nice and had left some lovely reviews. So thank you so much. Yes, thank you. We appreciate those of you who have already done it. It was a good blast uh, from the past when I when I looked because there's some oldies, oldies there. So good friends, memories, oh memories. So stay tuned. We will be back in this feed uh, with another trip to Frontierland later on in the month. Until then, everybody be good. We'll see you out here on the trail. Right now, it's time to go. 
Remember, everything you've seen here in our all-electric city is really possible today. So if you know any cities looking for a new springtime of progress, tell them about Progress City. Thanks, Thanks for, for joining, joining us. us. They call it Progress, Progress. Our time is at an end. We'll be seeing you again next time. And progress, Progress. Meet in Progress City, USA. You've been listening to the Progress City Radio Hour. Created by the folks at ProgressCityUSA.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at ProgressCityUSA. If you want to contact us, please write podcast at ProgressCityUSA.com. The Progress City Radio Hour is recorded at Arbor Ridge Studios in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. On the web at ArborRidgeStudios.com. The title theme was composed by Jeff Crawford, whose music can be found at jeffcrawfordmusic.com. Please join us again soon for another Progress City Radio Hour. They call it Progress.